You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read our section for this morning. We're going into chapter 2, carrying on from last Sunday's message. We're going to start with chapter 2, verse 14, and conclude at the end of the chapter. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies? and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You may be seated. Faith and deeds. Let me start by asking you a question. And as the latest incarnation of Doctor Who says, question! If you were convicted in a court of law for being a Christian, will there be sufficient evidence to charge you, to call you guilty? Will there be sufficient evidence of your profession that you are a Christian? This is the question that James poses to each one of us this morning. The question is the balance or the harmony that must exist between faith and our deeds? Is there any evidence in your life, any works, any fruit that you can point to and say, I have a living faith? Now before we, before we delve into that, there's a seeming controversy that sometimes comes up if we're reading the Bible uh, on a cursory level. And the controversy comes up primarily between the teachings of Paul on faith and the teaching of James that we see in this book on faith and deeds. Paul starts, for example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, by saying, For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or in Romans 3, 19 and 20, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law or the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Or in Romans 5.1, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, since we have been what? Justified through faith. Justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, through whom we have gained access by faith in this grace. Those are all big words that Paul is using in which we now stand. Or in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul goes on to say this, So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be what? Justified by faith. Everything that Paul teaches about and teaches on is that faith is the only thing that matters. All of our works are pointless and completely rubbish when it comes to receiving God's grace and his forgiveness. We are justified before God, not because of our works, but because of our faith. Now, James, on the other hand, seems, seems to contradict Paul when he says this in verse 26 or 24. He says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And it seems that these two pillars of our faith are, are going head to head. It seems that there is a seeming contradiction between what they are presenting. But nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, if you wanted to look at, if you wanted to look at it visually, it is as though Peter and Paul are standing at the doorway to the church, and Paul is looking out at the world, the sinners, and saying, you cannot rely on your works because salvation is a free gift from God. But on the other hand, standing with his back to Paul is James, who is looking inward into the church at the believers and saying, your works don't matter. Because Paul said that. When it comes to your justification before God, your works don't matter. But guess what, believers? Now that you have received justification, you must have fruit. You must produce fruit that justifies you before men. They're not in contradiction. They're just addressing different audiences. If you take that analogy or that illustration one step further, it is almost as though as well that Peter or Paul and James are addressing two different groups within the church. Now, in the time that these epistles and these letters were written, majority of Christians who were coming, uh, who had become part of the new church, the, the early church, were Jews. And so many of them had grown up in this religious system that was all about salvation through works. And so they had to keep all the law. They had to tithe. They had to give alms. They had to take care of the orphans. So everything was works-based. And so these Jews, when they come into the church, they are still very much focused on earning the salvation that is, in fact, a free gift from God. And so if you take that illustration, Paul is now looking at one end of the continuum where Jews have become Christians, and many of them are bringing in this practice of justification by works into the church, 
And Paul is saying, no, your salvation, your justification before God has nothing to do with your works. Don't do it. And, and James, in the same way, is standing back to back with Paul and saying to the believers, but listen to me, if you have genuine faith, then it must produce fruit. So the two men are not, in fact, in contradiction. They are backing each other up. So let me just quickly walk you through how their teachings harmonize. Paul says you cannot be saved by works in Ephesians 2. James says you cannot show that you're saved without your works. Paul says that a person can be saved by faith alone. James goes on to say a person can show that he is saved by his works. Paul says faith without, without works saves. It is the living faith. But James says faith without works does not save because it is dead faith. Paul says faith alone saves. James says faith that saves is not alone. Paul goes on to say a person is not saved by works. And James says a saved person will do good works. Paul agrees with James when he teaches that good works must accompany saving faith. He has this in Ephesians 2, Titus 3, Galatians 5. And James agrees with Paul when he says that a person inherits the kingdom of heaven only by faith. Paul writes about a guilty sinner being justified by God, before God, by God's grace, through faith. And James writes how a believer can show that his faith is genuine and be justified before men by their works. So Paul is addressing the guilty who need to be right with God, and James is addressing the believers who need to show God's grace in their lives to the men around them. So now that we've sorted out this controversy, let's take a look at, let's take a look at the actual passage that we're looking at. Paul starts, or James starts with, with a question. And the first thing we notice is that once again he uses this word, my brothers or my brethren, which as Pastor Terry mentioned last Sunday has been used 18 other times in this short little epistle. James is addressing believers in the early church or believers in the church in any age. He is speaking to those who in Paul's word have received the free salvation, the gift of salvation that comes in grace through God. Or at least he's addressing people who have, at the very least, professed to place their faith in Jesus Christ. So James starts by asking this question. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no faith? Can such faith save him? First thing to note is that James, in this case, is addressing people who profess to have faith. He's not questioning the validity of their genuine faith within their hearts. What he's questioning is when they are professing to have faith, but do not have works to provide evidence for that faith. And so he says, can such faith save him? Now we already know, having read the passage, that James considers this faith dead faith. So maybe we can rephrase this question and read it like this. What good is it, my brothers, if a man professes to have faith but has no deeds to show as evidence of the existence of that faith? Can such dead faith save him? 
James is talking about dead faith. And what he's doing in this, in pointing out works, for example, is he, he's talking about markers and pointers in the life of a believer who has genuine faith. What, what do I mean by that? He is drawing our attention to indicators that point to the world that the person has genuine faith within them. He's taking the, the litmus test beyond the words into their spirit and questioning markers in their life. You know, when a Christian or when a person becomes a Christian, they're brought to this stage of confession. They, they recognize their sin. They recognize the need for, the, for a Savior. They confess their sin and accept the atoning work, work of Jesus Christ. And once that happens, they receive this gift of salvation. But after that, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer and starts this work of sanctification in their life. Sanctification is the work whereby every believer is being shaped into a greater likeness of Jesus Christ. The work will not complete on this earth, but it is a work that starts from the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Every one of the believers is in a process of sanctification. It is a process that starts inside us and has outward expression. So as the Holy Spirit changes us on the inside, it is such a remarkable change that it's produ- it produces fruit that is evident outside our lives. The inward change is so transformative that there are visible, tangible, and external expressions of this change. In fact, the gist of the whole book of James is the outward expression of the inward change. Let me, let me take you through a few examples. If we go back to chapter 1, for example... In chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, we heard about trials, trials that come in the life of a believer. So this is what James is implying. If you have a transformative, genuine, life-bearing faith, then when trials come to you, you will consider them pure joy. Or in the next section, in verses 13 to 15, He talks about temptations. And so he's implying when you have genuine, life-changing, fruit-bearing faith and temptations come your way, this is how you would respond. Or in verse 22, James says that a believer with a transforming, life-bearing, fruit-bearing faith is not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. What happens when we do what the Word says? It results in deeds. Outward expressions of the inward change. Or in verse, verse 27 of the first chapter, James talks about the fact that the outward expression of faith results in the believers looking after the orphans and the widows and keeping themselves from being polluted by the world. Or at the beginning of this chapter, he talks about favoritism. When economic disparity comes face-to-face with a believer, they do not show favoritism because that is not how God operates. And so James, his point through the whole book is that genuine faith manifests itself in how we live and in our actions. Going on, he poses this hypothetical question. 
he goes on and says, Suppose, suppose such a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? It is a hypothetical question, but something that was very real, uh, not only in the early church, but is very real in today's day and age as well. If a brother comes before you and is destitute, and you respond in these words that, that we just read. You know, John MacArthur actually mentions that there are two different ways of reading that response, that hypothetical response that James gave. And neither one is consistent with God's character. There are two ways you can read it in the original Greek. And this is how you can read it. The first way you can read it is this. Go get yourself a job, get clothed, and get fed. I don't think that's consistent with God's character or his response to people who are in that need. Or the second response is this. Good luck, buddy, finding someone who will clothe you and feed you. Neither one is a response that is consistent with God's character. And so James is is being a little sarcastic, he's being a little convictive, but he's being very truthful when he says that when you respond in this manner to a brother or sister, it is not consistent with the life of a true believer. Now, some people have taken apart the brother and sister word in there and, and questioned whether this instruction is just for believers in the church that are in need of some, some kind of help. Should a believer respond to just another believer in the church uh, in this scenario? But by extension, we can also see that in the old times, in the Greek times, or in the time of the early church, the word brother and sister would also refer to anyone in the nation of Israel, whether they were part of the church or not, as long as they were part of the mankind that that had come from Adam, they were considered a brother or a sister. And so, by extension, we cannot use this verse to justify just taking care of other believers in the church. This has greater ramification and greater implication than the 300 people, for example, in this room. So, James is suggesting that when someone comes to you with a need, do something about it. He carries on with the same convictive tone when he says, Show me your faith without deeds. It is impossible. It is absolutely, utterly, completely impossible to demonstrate your faith without deeds. He goes on to use the example of Abraham and and Rahab. And the point to know there is that when each of them carried out the deed, Abraham taking his son to the altar for sacrifice, Rahab helping the spies, When they did those deeds, they were already in the transformative process. They already had a genuine faith, and so their actions were just a reflection of that. They were not justified by what Abraham did at the altar or what Rahab did with the the spies. That is not the case. So James goes on to say to the professing Christian with the dead faith, you believe in God. This is, again, another jab that he's taking at at the... uh, At the believers, you say you believe in God. Well, good for you, little Christian, because even demons believe that. 
and he's actually giving demons more credit. Because demons believe in God and they shudder because they recognize his power and his majesty. And James is saying, you don't even do that. So good for you that you believe in God, but even demons believe in God. Why is James placing such an emphasis on works? And I believe there are three, three reasons. First and foremost, because it is a work of God that is going on inside us. When there is evidence of that outside, we ultimately bring glory to God. We've all heard testimonies when people come up here and share their, their testimonies. We hear of the work that's going on in their lives. And then there's evidence, outward evidence, of what's going on in their lives. So first and foremost, the works are, are a demonstration of God's work in our life and they bring glory to God. Secondly, as James suggests, they justify our faith before, God, before men. We have been justified already before God, but now our works justify us before men. And third, sometimes our works that people witness in our lives become seeds that are planted in other people's lives and ultimately take hold and bring them into a saving, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. What are, what are these works? What can, they, what can they look like? I believe there are everyday type of good works that you can do. You know, if uh, we have kids in the room, for example, if your brother or your sister, your older brother and older sister are at camp and the youngest one makes a card, a welcome home card when they come back, that's a good deed. That's a good deed. Or if you have a new girl who started in your grade and she's not making many friends and you reach out and make friends, invite her to your birthday party, that's a good deed. Or just one more example, let's say it's your track and field at the school and you're running in your 800 meter and you're almost at the tape and you realize that your friend who was running right next to you tripped and fell and you turn around and you go and help your friend. You didn't win the medal, but you reached back, you made sure he was okay and then the two of you crossed the finish line together. That's a good deed. What are good deeds? Good deeds are things we do as a response to the work that God is doing in our hearts. And good deeds are consistent with God's character. The other type of good deed that, that can, can be identified are the good works that God has already prepared for us. And I believe this is where a balance of our spiritual gifts and what we do come, come together. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, it sums up this whole conversation beautifully. And this is what Ephesians says. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. James is talking to the believers in the church. Most people in this room profess to be Christians. We believe that the change has happened on the inside and that's where your profession comes from. But he is asking, James is asking you this morning, he's asking me this morning, is your faith fruitless and dead? Or is your faith 
fruit-bearing and alive? I can't answer this question for you. I can't even answer it for my, my own family. I can answer the question for me. And as I've been convicted, as I've been praying and working through this passage, I, I've got a report card in front of me. And the report card doesn't look good. And there are chances, there are times when we evaluate our own Christian life and the report card doesn't look good. And so we get discouraged. But then there's the flip side of the report card and that is God's evaluation and his work in my life. And without that work, my side of the report card would look a whole lot worse than it does. And so we give glory to God for the work that he's doing. And we recognize in our lives that we're not where God wants us to be, but we were not where he found us. This was a hard teaching. I was convicted over and over again, as I mentioned. But I can see the progression that God is taking me through as we move towards eternity. We started with a question. We started with the question. If, if you were brought into a court of law, if you were brought to trial for being a Christian, will there be enough evidence to convict you? I don't know what the verdict is. There are only two possible verdicts. The first verdict could be not guilty. Not guilty on account of insufficient evidence. Your words don't mean anything Your peers, your jury did not find enough evidence that you had genuine faith within you. Or the second verdict, guilty as charged. Yes, you're charging me to be a Christian. Yes, I am a Christian. I profess that with my words. And your peers in the jury say, yes, we found sufficient evidence to convict you for being a Christian. I don't know which verdict is going to be pronounced for who. But God is merciful. God is merciful. And if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, His Holy Spirit is already at work in you. All you need to do, all I need to do, is respond to the promptings of the Spirit. Will you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can come before you in our rags, in our tattered spirituality, and we're thankful that we don't have to count on any of that, on any of that for being justified before you. We're thankful that the work that, that you need for justification, you provide as a free gift to all who come to you. We thank you that Jesus Christ has paid the price for all of our sin and given us the freedom to come before you as your children. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your mercy. And we pray, Lord, that as we go forward, that you would take our our hearts and continue to mold them to your will. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will continue to sanctify us and shape us to be more like you. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.